You are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. It is Live from the front lines of the most important election in human history, it's election show. Wait, the 252 Sports Talk Radio. <laughs> there we go. I'm Chris Garrett, history professor at Bethel University, joined by... I'm Chris Moore from Political Science. And I'm Sam Mulberry from History. And Chris Moore, that'll be the last time we mentioned that we're recording on Election Day. I know you've got a jam-packed day ahead of you. Um, everyone should listen to Election Shock Therapy if they didn't. I, I know we're, we're actually putting this up on Wednesday the 4th. We're recording on... November the 3rd, which is kind of an important day in the political world. So we'll move on yeah. from that and maybe give people a little distraction from all the political tumult and talk about our favorite subject, which is uh, sports from different angles. Now, just to catch up, guys, because we're not teaching our history and politics of sports class at all this year, we have not really been doing a lot of these episodes. In fact, the last time this august group gathered to talk sports was <laughs> about was about two and a half months ago, mid-August. Mm -hmm. So just to remind you, we were talking mostly about COVID at that point and what it had meant for sports and how they had restarted. But at that point, uh, Major League Baseball was just getting underway. The NHL playoffs, the NBA playoffs were still underway. The NFL had not started. College football had not started. Uh, so let's kind of check in. First of all, just maybe really some quick hits from you guys. What do you think about how well the NBA, the NHL, Major League Baseball, now that they're done, how well did their experiments under COVID go? Sam, you want to take the first crack? Yeah, I, I thought, um, I think the thing that I watched the most was the NBA. Um, and I actually thought that went really pretty well. Um, I feel like, uh, and I'm, I'm interested to hear uh, you, Chris Garrett's talk about baseball a little bit because that's your favorite sport. But I felt like the NBA, in part because the season, we were pretty deep into the season when we uh, when the, this, the league shut down and reopened. I feel pretty uh, like the the Lakers championship is a is a fairly legitimate championship. I thought the bubble uh, worked pretty well. I loved in the summer having days where I just felt like there was basketball games stacked on basketball games in the middle of the day. It was actually as somebody who who has a um, a job where I don't necessarily have to go in every day in the summer. It was fun to turn on a you know a weekday afternoon and be like, hey, there's a basketball game on. I actually really liked it. I thought the um, Television coverage in the bubble, it it still looked like basketball. It still felt like basketball. I think that was maybe one of the sports that was not hindered uh, by not having the crowd as much. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not as much of an NBA or basketball fan as, as you guys are, but it, mm -hmm. it seemed like a kind of summer version professional March Madness, that you could watch as much basketball as you want. The games mattered. They were taken seriously. I thought it did play really well on TV. And actually, I thought the NHL had played pretty well for what it did um, as well. I mean, as a baseball fan... Um, there's a degree to which it felt like kind of an, a, a silly kind of season, the 60 game thing. It hadn't, I mean, so it, it was all circumscribed. But like once you got into the heat of it, um, if I didn't know what was going on, those games felt meaningful. The results felt legitimate. The Dodgers clearly were the best team throughout, and yet it was still a good World Series. Uh, there were teams to root for. Um, they managed to get a few fans at least into the World Series at the end. Chris, um, let me ask you. How, how much did you feel, Chris, um, that? Because it was the Dodgers that won, and the Dodgers have been this team sort of on the brink of winning for a number of years, that it felt more legitimate because it's like, well, if they had played a full season, we probably still would have been projecting the Dodgers. Had it been somebody who 
kind of came out of nowhere and you looked at that team and thought, I don't know if in a normal season that team's going to make it. I mean, would you have felt differently? Yeah, no, I mean, the worst possible outcome for Major League Baseball would have been if the Houston Astros had continued their run from irrelevance, tainted by utter horror, disdain, and stigma um, to actually pull out the AL pennant and then make a run in the World Series. No, like, I mean, the Rays were clearly the best team in the AL for 60 games. The Dodgers were, and I think if you'd played 100 more games, the Dodgers still would have been there, and the Rays still would have been there. Um, I, I thought it was really fun. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I wish the Twins, I mean, it, it was kind of business as usual for the Twins season, <laughs> the regular season, and then they can't win a playoff game. I was watching Moneyball. For some reason, I've been waking up early in the morning and Moneyball was on, and I forgot that it ends with the last playoff series the Minnesota Twins won against the Oakland A's in 2002, which mm. was really hard to take. But uh, so, all of which to say, like, as a baseball fan, I was pretty satisfied with how it went. Now, when last we talked to you guys, we were starting to think about what was going to happen with the, the NFL. They were not playing preseason games. Yep. We really didn't have a good sense of what this would look like. Here we are, not quite, I guess, halfway through the NFL season. Some players have missed games. Some games have been rescheduled, but they're playing without fans. How do you think the NFL has done? I think, uh, jumping off of Sam's first point, you have to say that the NBA is the high watermark by which all other sports are measured in terms of the execution of their sport in the midst of COVID. Uh, the NBA figured out a way to bubble their team, their their players up, and with a few minor uh infractions early on was really able to keep the quality of play up the and keep the players healthy i'm struck by the fact that even as the dodgers and i agree with everything chris just said about uh the dodgers sort of validating this short season by being clearly one of the best teams and then carrying it through and finishing it off uh we had an, an active live case of covid celebrating on the field uh during the celebration like this is that is something that will show up in the in the descriptions of this uh, um, of this World Series championship um, in perpetuity. I think the NFL, honestly, is below the MLB at this point. Uh, the the level of watch care placed over the over the players and how they're you know how they're being monitored, how they're being maintained. I know exorbitant amounts of money are being spent on testing, but it's uh, it's it's not shining as a as a as strong of an example yet. I would also say my sense, and again, I'm not as big an NFL fan as I am a baseball fan. I mean, like the NFL is tailor-made for TV. I think we've probably talked about that multiple times in the past three dozen episodes. I don't know. I was watching the Packers-Vikings game in an empty Lambeau Stadium. Like It felt a little ridiculous. I mean, the fact that you can hear the quarterbacks, there's no crowd noise whatsoever, that the Delvin Cook, the Vikings running back, kind of mocked the Lambeau leap by leaping into an empty stand and taunting no one in particular. Um, I mean, it reveals how silly the NFL game actually is if you remove all the trappings of what makes it a good TV experience. So I don't know. Like, I don't know if it's just the way they're doing crowd noise. And I've been accustomed to watching like Premier League soccer where they found a way to kind of maintain enough noise. You get the feel of the game and you don't see the empty stands. But I, I think it actually feels kind of strange watching NFL and even elite college football games with either no fans or just like a smattering of fans making just enough noise to realize how empty it is. So as a viewing experience, setting aside kind of the testing concerns that Chris is right to bring up, I'm not sure how successful the NFL has been so far. There's a place for behavioral social scientists to make some money here because almost everyone I've talked to has complained about the uh, the uncanny valley of the piped-in crowd noise. It's certainly, I think we have to conclude it's better than nothing, but it's not much better than nothing. And I was watching the Ohio State-Penn State game this last weekend, 
and whoever's running the soundboard to create noise either needs to understand football better um, or needs to understand or, or have more tools at their disposal because the same level of sort of neutral crowd murmuring happened for a sack versus happened for a, a touchdown. And it, it was, it's weird. It's weird. And um, I think also how we display, how we shoot these games Football is especially problematic. NHL, actually, this is one of the things in their favor. You really can keep the camera on the ice, right. uh, and you need to keep the camera on the ice. Football tends to pan across the field, and you pick up a lot of the stands, and it's really hard to figure out how you shoot the game without revealing that it's being played in this artifice. It does all feel very Truman Show. I'll, I'll have to say that you're kind of real, which it was even with the fans there. You just realize it more with them absent. Uh, so, Chris, you mentioned Penn State. Uh, uh, was it Ohio State you're watching? Uh, yeah, yeah. I just so yeah, that's a good pivot to our next topic, which is college football has also come back again. When we recorded our last one, I can't remember, guys, but I don't think Big Ten at that point was actually planning to play no. in mid August. Pac Ten was going to play. Both of them have now come back, or the Pac Ten I think is about to restart this weekend. So all the power conferences are playing again. You've had games canceled. Um, so I don't know how much you want to talk about that because, like, Chris, I know you're going to come back to this before we go in our three to see. You're going to talk about yeah. I want to talk about one thing in particular, which is, uh, in some ways, the current uh, NCAA football schedule is harkening back to uh, really a pre-consolidation, a pre-televisation of college football. Uh, for for you know for many decades, the way the college national football national championship was determined was simply uh, sports writers would vote. Um, and vote for rankings, and, and whoever won the AP poll was declared the winner that year because you couldn't have every team playing every other team. And in recent years, we've come up with first the BCS and now the college football playoff system where we at least try to get some of the best teams in the same uh, stadiums with each other to kind of sort of hash this out a little bit. But now you have this weird situation where uh, some teams are going to play demonstrably more games than other teams, and you have – uh, the coaches poll, the AP poll, trying to figure out how do we evaluate a 2-0 Ohio State team versus a 6-0 Alabama team? And what does that even mean at this point when there's Ohio's not, Ohio State's not going to catch up with Alabama in terms of games played? How do you figure out who gets slotted into those Final Four uh, uh, playoff teams? And this really does reveal, so I think, sort of the, the crass fiduciary uh, um, goals of the NCAA, right? Because... At the end of the day, what they really want are four teams that are going to generate a lot of revenue playing in those playoff games. And so if they can get a Notre Dame and Ohio State and Alabama and a Clemson in the playoffs, they're happy even if those teams didn't play a commensurate number of football minutes. Yeah, I wonder if, um, I mean, if we're watching a kind of unfolding disruption. I mean, even last year, pre-COVID, in the first time we taught our class, Chris, we did spend a lot of time talking about college sports football especially, the kind of economy, the labor structure of it, and how that was being challenged. And it'll be interesting when, at least I think I'll be teaching it a year from now or a year from next spring, to see some of the lingering effects of COVID. You know, what comes out of this admittedly strange season, how much of it um, does reshape some of the questions we'd asked before. Now, I don't think football is going away by any stretch, but actually I think our big question for this episode, something Chris and I were talking about a couple weeks ago, is how much is COVID going to lead to a permanent downsizing of college athletics more generally? Again, probably not in football, but which sports will be hardest hit? So let me give you guys a little bit of background information of what's happened this summer and then this fall in terms of college sports being cut because of the impact of not having revenue. 
from uh, from admissions, from ancillary kind of revenues. I don't know if TV has been affected as well. So over the summer, for example, Stanford University and the Pac-12 uh, Pac cut 11 sports. Now these are things like women's sailing and synchronized swimming, men's volleyball and wrestling, and then for both uh, sexes, fencing and field hockey. On the other side of the country, Connecticut, UConn cut men's cross country, swimming and diving and tennis, and women's rowing. And so there were some summer, even very early on, some programs decided to cut. Then more recently, close to home, the University of Minnesota and the Big Ten, their board voted to eliminate men's gymnastics, tennis, and indoor track and field, and kind of saved outdoor men's track at the last minute. Mm -hmm. My alma mater, William & Mary, cut gymnastics, swimming, men's track, and women's volleyball. About a third of its entire athletic department and its athletic director resigned as a result. So I was reading a report, NBC News had kind of gone through as many of these as they could find. And just in Division One, so just at the top tier of the NCAA, at, uh, as of mid-October, 26 universities have caught a total of about 90 programs, affecting about 1,500 student-athletes. So again, it's not affecting football. The only football closure I could find was a smaller school, Occidental College, cut its football team. So um, I guess you think these are permanent cuts. Are we seeing a permanent retrenchment in the size of college athletics that maybe was even overdue in some respects for a long time? Or is this something like, could these sports come back? For example, Bethel, I think, actually cut women's softball for a period of time in its history and then brought it back. Um, I forget if it was 15, 20 years ago. So this does happen occasionally, but do you see this as leading to a more permanent kind of uh, downsizing or right-sizing of college athletics? So I'll... I'll 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 take the broad answer and then I'll leave, I'll leave sort of the narrow one to Sam if he wants to if he wants to shut, uh, cut into this, but I actually think this is the jerseyed canary in the coal mine, and we've been talking inside of higher ed more generally, not just in terms of athletics, about the potential higher ed bubble mm -hmm. and the fact that high, um, colleges are becoming uh, increasingly expensive, the rising cost of tuition is outpacing the cost. Uh, the um, out outpacing inflation dramatically. Um, college is increasingly hard for, for uh, middle-class families to afford. And one of the reasons that's happening is because colleges are in an arms race, arms race with each other to provide as many kinds of amenities and experiences and opportunities as they possibly can. And that leads to uh, lots of things, including athletics. But at a certain point, the enterprise and the, tra and the financial trajectory of the enterprise is unsustainable. And so what we're seeing here, I think, are colleges, even large colleges, reaching their upper limits and deciding as much as we like to be as comprehensive a, as a university as we can, University of Minnesota, for example, we can't support an indoor track program. And we need to cut costs somewhere, and we're going to start to cut at some of these things. Now, I don't think necessarily this is just sort of a polite trimming, and then we're sort of back to business as usual. I think this actually harbinges uh, sort of a potentially a cascade effect. And I would expect these numbers to remain constant or even accelerate in the near future as more and more schools pare back their athletic offerings and really focus on those things that are enrollment generating and even revenue generating. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking here about Division One schools, which with a few exceptions like Stanford or Notre Dame, these are usually large public research universities where you, I mean, one of the other problems that they're dealing with is state funding declining. And of course, COVID's only going to make that worse because Minnesota had a surplus until the pandemic hit, and now schools like the University of Minnesota are going to look for funding. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what I don't know is how much this is going to start um, trickling down to Division Two, and then to places like Bethel, Division Three. And we should add, like, I don't think we've heard that Bethel, for example, is eliminating any of its sports. No. 
even though I mean, most of them are not playing right now and uh, who knows what the future will bring, we do have a kind of deficit left over from COVID. I, I think that's exactly right on, Chris. I mean, the way I was trying to think about this is, you know, the, the higher ed bu bubble you've described has been inflating for a very long time and it didn't pop. It started to leak with the Great Recession. So it's been about 12 years and, and probably there was a lag time of a couple of years. But like since 2010, for example, we've been seeing our enrollment decline and we've been mm -hmm. seeing lots of cuts that largely haven't affected athletics. And I think the first response of most universities of very different types was to try to grow their way out of the problem right, is, is you add things because you can convince yourself that adding a sport, for example, or another extracurricular experience or a new academic program draws some marginal growth in enrollment and it makes mm -hmm. you more competitive. Or you feel like you have to do it because your closest competitors did the same thing. And you get this kind of um, unsustainable growth where increasingly these universities and colleges all look the same, right? And what we've seen already is academic programs being cut. Right? And a lot of them tend to be um, fairly small kinds of programs that you can kind of tell yourself, well, these are niche kind of programs. You can still be the kind of university or college you want to be if you don't have this program. But more recently, we've been getting closer to a kind of core. And I wonder if what we'll see in the next 10 years is more schools being comfortable kind of picking their identity to fewer sort of signature programs and deciding we don't all have to be the same. I remember a few, like five years ago, I was at actually a board meeting of Bethel and heard a consultant say the, the big problem is that 95% of your programs are identical across all these peer institutions. I think the same thing is true of sports, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think what we're seeing is the beginning of moving away from that. And you're going to start seeing it's, you're going to compare if you're an athlete, well, you've only got a certain number of swimming and diving or fencing or field hockey options to pick from just as there might be some academic programs like in the state of Minnesota, you can't just assume that all 30 private colleges have uh, physical education or media production or even maybe philosophy or French or things like that. Mm -hmm. I think the question then that raises certainly that we all have felt on the academic side is what then is the core? I mean, what are the fields where you can't actually cut them and still be the same? We're actually very similar schools need to have very similar programs, even if the enrollment doesn't support it. And so I think a question we've been kind of toying with, Chris, is there a kind of analog to that in college athletics? Is there yes. a core of sports that you need to have to have a viable, legitimate um, program? Um, because I don't think what we're necessarily going to see is most schools just kind of saying, well, we'll just have hockey schools and that's all they do. And we'll just have football schools and that's all they right. do. Right, right. So the question is, what is the core? So there are a lot of ways we could approach this. Let me start with some data. So uh, right now there are about 1,200 members of the NCAA across all three divisions. So keep that in mind as I give you these numbers. So about two years ago, Business Insider uh, went through and tried to calculate how many uh, colleges uh, offer each sport. And so remember that there are 1,200, and most of these are played by both men and women. So 100% would be 2,400 um, programs, essentially. So the most common program was basketball, about 2,200 programs, men and women. So this is approximately like 90-some percent. And then from there, you go down by about 100 with each of the ones I'm going to name. Cross country is next. Baseball and softball is around 2,000. Soccer is around 1,900. Tennis and track are both about 1,700. And that's, I think, outdoor track. And then the last one where it's uh, more than 50% of both sexes is golf, about 1,500 total. Past that, the only others where you can make a kind of 50% have it argument are more gender specific. Women's volleyball, 1,000 of the 1,200. And then, of course, men's football, 700 of the 1,200. And that's it. 
Nothing else is found at the majority of NCAA members. Fascinating. Yeah. And so that, I mean, that does kind of fit then with why like men's volleyball would go away or wrestling would go away or synchronized swimming or fence. I mean, so Olympic sports, sports where there's a clear kind of gender difference. And especially if it's uh, women predominantly play it, you can see why men's team is going away because of Title IX expectations. Mm -hmm. for um, so... Does that surprise you, Chris? Because I guess I'm not surprised by the basketball number, but as the numbers fall off dramatically, what I'm left thinking about is, wow, there's a significant number of schools that aren't staffing uh, baseball and softball. There's a significant number of schools that aren't staffing. I mean, even something is, you know, really low budget um, as, as cross country. And I love cross country as a sport but it doesn't take much to run that sport. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and uh, so, I mean, that, it's really surprising to me that how many schools are electing not to have those sports. And really what it means is they're having basketball and maybe a selection of other things, but there's these gaps in almost everyone's athletic departments. That yeah, they're, not, they're, not, they're not homogenous. No, that's true. I mean, I think cross country, um, yeah, so it's like on average 150 schools don't have cross country. If yeah. you do kind of shit. But like, Baseball, like a sixth of NCAA members don't have baseball and softball. Yeah. I mean, and I wonder how that's changed over the last 20 years. It's like youth participation. I mean, people have been pulled in soccer or football or even lacrosse kind of directions. Yeah, you said 1900 for soccer. And I wonder, I'm, my hunch would be that that number has probably climbed in the 90s. I'm not sure if it climbed in the aughts, but I'm sure it's, it's it climbed more recently. Right. Um, so one thing that does strike me looking at this is that most of those are not actually fall sports. So these are not necessarily, or if they are like soccer, you actually do have some schools playing soccer, but that feels different enough that they feel like they can do it. Football, we've already talked about. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what'll be interesting, I'll be curious to see the impact about basketball. I mean, like that does seem like absolutely a core sport. College has been playing that for a century. Um, most campuses have been built with a field house or a gym of some sort where you can compete with basketball. Uh, and, and most schools really are not dependent on um ticket sales to make those kind of sports run. But, you know, winter sports, this is where we're going to start seeing that problem. And I wonder if actually hockey is the one that will feel it more because that's already a pretty niche regional kind of sport. Expensive. Like grown in some places and it's expensive. So what's going to happen if like you can't play hockey at Arizona State, right, this coming year? Like, is that a program that's easy to cut? Or even some Big Ten universities. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, it's not going away from the University of Minnesota, but from like... I don't know how important it is at Ohio State or at Penn State is a more recent kind of hockey program. Like mm -hmm. I can see that starting to shrink a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the other question that is like, I mean, it might depend on COVID numbers over the winter into the spring. Like once we start getting into some of these spring sports, are you going to see another bigger wave of closures happening that starts cutting into this kind of core? I think especially if we end up with another online semester in the spring, which I think is likely, yep. then I think, yeah, you're going to see another wave of cuts. Sam, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, I mean, I think there's there's regional cores. I, the th interesting thing about hockey compared to some of these sports that I that I wonder how this plays in is if a school already has that program and they already have a facility for that program, it seems harder to cut because it's not like you can use, I mean, you can use a hockey rink for ice skating. <laughs> like, 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 like what else can you use that for once you have it? Well, but you I wonder know. how many schools actually have an on-campus rink. Right. right? right. I mean, we work at a school that's had hockey for a long time. It, it moved from being a club to a team sport, I think, in the late 60s or 70s, but it's always rented space somewhere. And rinks right. have actually 
closing in Minnesota, right? So, right, and that that's one of the things that, that I that I would would be interesting to know, like not specifically about hockey, but like if there's been so much invested in particular facilities or things for a sport, if that makes it harder to cut because it's like, well, we've just built this thing or we just have so so does that mean that that thing needs to exist because we have that now Um, so that actually leads to this i think another way of conceptualizing and chris i don't hope i didn't step on your your model mm -hmm. here but um one way to think about this is data driven right uh there's strength in numbers the more NCAA schools to have basketball the more likely it is to be lucrative to keep basketball because it's a it's a going concern as other schools cut their indoor track programs, it's more and more expensive for you to continue to run an indoor track program, especially if it's not drawing you additional enrollment. And so you might cut it there. But there are uh, the other kinds of things where you'd say, well, this isn't so much about enrollment as it is about identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we uh, we need to promote ourselves as the kind of school that does blank. And you could see, make, you could hear Minnesota being like, we're the kind of school that needs to be a hockey school. We'll play hockey until there's only a few schools left playing hockey because it's part of who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point, financial exigencies might even push you out of those kinds of realms. I also think it might disproportionately hit men's sports. I mean, we've already seen this with most of the examples I just named, and University of Minnesota is the clearest. No women's sports were affected. It was only men's sport. And they were already, I think, kind of struggling to maintain their gender balance that Title IX requires. But if you think about it generally, I think the American college student population is slightly disproportionately female, but that's markedly so at certain kind of institutions, especially mm-hmm. like private religious ones like Bethel and a lot of its peers. Um, I, I, so, I mean, that, that is one reason I think about hockey. Like, is, is it relatively easy to cut something like men's hockey? Football is kind of sine qua non. But um, and the other thing I've been thinking about, and I think this ties back into sort of the larger arc that Chris was thinking about, it, where is higher ed headed more generally? I mean, I feel like I've actually seen a few more kind of futurist type think pieces saying, hey, what if we detach academics from the co-curriculum? I'm pointing out that, for example, European universities don't do all these other things on campuses like American universities do. Now, to Sam's point, American universities have long since invested in physical space and campuses and infrastructure that supports all those things. It'd be hard for a place like Bethel suddenly not to have dorms, not to have athletic venues, not to have all sorts of student services. But there are models, and even in American history, you can find models, especially in cities, of it was very different. You went to class. I mean, this is basically what we're experiencing right now. American mm-hmm. higher ed, where most of what you do is you're a student, and then kind of um, circumscribed versions of the other sorts of things you tend to expect to be part of the college experience. So in sports, I wonder if we could, you know, in 10, 20 years, be seeing a model of where some of these, especially Olympic type or niche sports, are done through just an expansion of the youth system that we already have. Could it be that if you want to be a competitive swimmer, a competitive hockey player, what you do is you just keep going with the kind of club system or um, even hockey, the kind of juniors competitive system. And maybe you take classes on the side, but they're not embedded within higher education. We already see this in a number of the Olympic sports, right? Uh, there are running clubs across the United States uh, for distance runners, and they're they're detached from uh, the NCAA. Uh, and uh, there's several. There, there are other. I'm, I'm struggling now to think of another example, but there are other sports where um, swimming actually um, is another example where there are club swimming teams that are divorced from the NCAA but are considered. Uh, really important for Olympic training venues. And you can imagine a world in which uh, if colleges no longer want to support sort of expensive 
sports programs. I'm not thinking about basketball here because I still think that's going to be a cash cow for most schools moving forward. But maybe something like lacrosse, which is fairly niche um, and potentially expensive, but could probably – you could easily run a, a club lacrosse league in the Twin Cities. Right. And that would allow all the local schools in the Twin Cities to get rid of those programs and to allow that sport community to persist for those who want to play it. Yeah, you could also imagine kind of cooperative relationships where maybe those athletes are part of a club and then they maybe also are contracting with the university to take classes as part of it. Yeah, yeah again, probably because I've been watching so much European football. Yeah, I mean, I'm aware that around the world, there are a lot of elite athletes who don't go to college as part of that preparation, right? Mm -hmm. And you have training academy, kind of pipeline systems. Um, it doesn't take a lot to imagine how that could happen in this country. I mean, we already see this like in baseball. I mean, baseball is this kind of weird hybrid in that you do have college baseball that does feed the labor supply for the professional sport, but then you have this alternative called minor league baseball, which we're in the middle of major league baseball essentially overhauling, streamlining, taking control of. Uh, I mean, what are if other elite levels of sports decide to do the same kind of thing and, you know, I mean, it could be kind of a confluence of factors really making college sports a much smaller thing than it has been for our lifetime, certainly. Okay. Any last thoughts, Sam or Chris, or should we wrap up this episode? I'm, I'm really struck by this. And I, I think that um, we could really see as uh, essentially sort of, I, I've been thinking, sorry, I've been thinking for the last couple of months about sort of permanent effects of COVID. And I think one of the permanent effects of COVID is students will, will see um, uh, we, we've essentially jump-started at many places, uh, uh, multiple modes of, of, of educational delivery. And that means that I think that we could run the risk of being a much more permanently disengaged from the campus culture, from residential campus culture. And I think some schools like Bethel will probably recover most of that. But I think a lot of places that already had sort of a weak transactional camp, uh, campus community culture will find it very easy to slide into just being a place that delivers education and not these other kinds of amenities. And this is one of the ways that costs get cut. Okay, so we'll give the last word to Chris Moore as he looks to the somewhat distant future. Let's now close by looking to the very near future. We always like yeah. to recommend three things to see coming up in sports this weekend. Sam Mulberry, kick us off. Chris and Chris, why is Wednesday, November 18th a special night? Oh, it sounds weird to say this, but it's the date of the NBA draft on November 18th. I'm a, big fan, I'm a big fan of drafts in general, but this year it has extra significance because the Minnesota Timberwolves have won the NBA draft lottery for only the second time in their history. They own the first overall pick with the top prospects on the board being Memphis big man James Wiseman, Georgia guard Anthony Edwards, and ball family guard. I don't know. I mean, he plays <laughs> uh, Lamelo Ball. Uh, Christmas Pistons own the seventh overall pick. I for uh, one, yeah, <laughs> I for one, I'm hoping to see the Wolves trade down to pick three um, with the Hornets uh, to try to pick up an unprotected first rounder in something like 2022 and take whichever of these three prospects is still on the board. My son Banked Mulberry just wants to see them take Lamelo Ball at the top and be done with it. Wow, Bank is kind of trolling the rest of us with that. <laughs> Like, can I just, uh, if Bank is listening to this, I love it. Take take Lamelo Ball. I'm serious. That's that's the right pick. This is this is. I feel like this is shades of um, Steph Curry all over again. It's the he's going to be obviously the best player five years from now. You'll be kicking yourselves you don't take him. Take Lamelo Ball. Take him. I will, there is no downside to the the world's doing something risky at this point. I, I couldn't possibly care. There's nothing to protect or save. Yeah. 
Yeah, go for it. You got it. Chris Moore. Okay, so I'm going to go to my favorite sport, which is uh, NCAA football. Uh, after uh, handling uh, Penn State this last week, I'm feeling pretty sanguine about my Buckeyes. So I'm looking beyond, beyond them, and I'm looking at uh, this week's premier matchup when number one overall Clemson heads to South Bend to take on Notre Dame. Now, a couple interesting wrinkles to this game. Clemson uh, had to launch an incredible comeback uh, to in the second half to uh, beat Boston College this last week. So they're not um, the juggernaut, perhaps, that we might think they were under normal circumstances. In contrast, Notre Dame took care of business against Georgia Tech, but Georgia Tech was also a team that Clemson themselves had beaten very handily earlier in the season. But here's the really interesting wrinkle. The uh, Clemson quarterback, Trevor Lawrence, widely believed to be the number one overall pick in the NFL draft, and dare I say, possibly even dreamy in terms of his overall quarterback play has quote has coronavirus. And so this is one of the hair. ways that what's that? I thought you were talking about his hair. I didn't realize you meant his quarterback play was dreamy. Well, it, it kind of all goes oh. together. It kind of, yeah. So here's the deal. Um, this is one more way that, that the, the pandemic is influencing college sports. The number one overall player in the country is going to be sitting out this game between number one Clemson and number four Notre Dame because of because of the pandemic and i think that's fascinating and i think that's a real headline and something worth watching all right uh two months in it's been a topsy-turvy season in the english premier league that's right soccer manchester city is in 10th place manchester united is closer to the relegation zone than to the top half of the table they do have a game in hand while liverpool are back in first they've looked mortal giving up an astonishing seven goals to aston villa which nearly missed being relegated last season but is currently tied with Chelsea and Arsenal. My pick for the best match this weekend pits second place Leicester City against sixth place Wolverhampton Wanderers. Wolves are the epitome of the 21st century Premier League. Only two of their starters are English, while about five of their 11, like their coach, hail from Portugal, and two of their best offensive threats are Mexican and Spanish. Leicester City, on the other hand, they're anchored by Danish goalie Kasper Schmeichel, but two of their most dynamic players are English. Striker Jamie Vardy, who last year became the oldest player to lead the Premiership in scoring, and midfielder James Madison, who is always a threat on set pieces. He had a nice assist over the last weekend. So that's for Isaiah Garretts, by the way, since Ben Kamalbury snuck in a mention. I should. Isaiah has become a big uh, British soccer fan. Well, guys, it was fun to get the gang back together and talk a little bit more. COVID, college sports, we'll have to do this again, uh, I guess, sometime in January 2021, if we keep our current pace. We're really not trying to exert ourselves too much with this. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, everyone, hopefully Election Day went uh, better than we all expected to go. We'll see. We're Mm -hmm. not going to predict that future. Head on over Election Shock Therapy. They did that on their episode last week, and maybe you want to listen to their micropods from Election Night itself. Hope you guys have a great time at the election watch party tonight. Chris Moore, take us away. All right. Thanks, friends. Uh, you've been listening to uh, the 252. You can always get a hold of us uh, um, at, on this channel at channel3900 at gmail.com. Please subscribe to the channel. We got a lot of great stuff coming down the pipe. Election Shock Therapy uh, will have released a series of micropods to deal with the election uh, so, uh, since the time you're, you're hearing my voice. And we'll have some post-election analysis for weeks and possibly months to come. So thanks for listening. Uh, be patient with the process. Keep the faith and go Royals.